0: Welcome to Get In The Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get In The Herd. good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to get in the herd after hours after hours this is a recovery podcast brought to you by the McShin foundation um my name is alex bond i'm the host of the podcast as well as a certified peer recovery specialist and a staff member here at McShin, reporting live from my office i'm the uh, medication and drug screen coordinator here and more importantly a person in sustained recovery from a substance use disorder, which means that I've not put any mood or mind altering substances in my body for about 15 months now. And I'm really stoked about tonight's show. We got a real cool uh, group of people here.
1: Um, First off, Joe, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, thanks, Alex. Happy to be here tonight. Um, My name is Joe Conniff. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Uh, What that means to me is I haven't found it necessary to take the full flight from reality uh, through substances since May 15, 2015. Um, I currently work as a certified peer counselor and resource specialist with a local drug diversion court here in Seattle. Um, also, a mindfulness instructor, post 911 Navy vet, and um, recently authored my memoir, Causes and Conditions A Life Experience in Addiction and Recovery, that um, just came out in uh, mid December of 2020.
0: Thanks. That's
2: awesome. That's really awesome. Very happy to have you on. Um, T, why don't you introduce yourself? Good evening, everyone. My name is T Scott. I am a certified peer recovery specialist and CEO and founder of the Maryland Peer Advisory Council, formerly um, known as IMPACT. Uh, we provide leadership and advocacy and training for individuals, families, and allies in seeking recovery. Uh, I am also a Maryland organizer for the recovery. Advocacy Project. Thank you for having
0: me. Awesome. Very happy to have you on. We, um, we've we had a lot of rat people on here, so we, we love the Re- Recovery Advocacy Project for sure. Um, Seth, why don't you introduce yourself, my friend?
3: Absolutely. Uh, my name is Seth Welch. I am also honored to be here tonight, too. Thank you all for uh, inviting me, and thanks, Joe. Um, I'm a person in long-term recovery as well, which for me, that means that if I make it to Valentine's day. It'll be 12 years. So that's pretty, pretty great. Um, I work as a substance use disorder professional and, uh, the, uh, basically the recovery program manager at Seattle's only public recovery high school. So I've been with that since for over five years, basically since it began here, uh, interagency recovery high school is the name of it. And, uh, I've worked in treatment with, always with um, teenagers and young adults for about ten years, and uh, I love my whole life is recovery, and I, I like it that way. It's very much professional is very much integrated with personal, and that works for me.
0: So. That's awesome! Very very happy to have you on, and um, you know, hopefully <laughs> Valentine's Day pans out for you. That's uh, that's a cool <laughs> little 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 recovery day for sure. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in and and I guess ask like, Joe, can you actually explain what a drug court diversion program is to listeners who might not know what that is?
1: Sure. So, um, I'll do my best to kind of describe program that I'm familiar with. I know they kind of, they can vary state to state, county to county. Um, need to just definitely clarify that I don't speak for King County or King County drug diversion court. Sure. Um, We could talk about what I do know is the program that I work in is a pre-trial, uh, pre uh, felony diversion program, which means, uh, folks that are going to participate in the program, um, are charged with a felony or multiple felonies. Um, and it's a 12, typically a 12 to 18 month program, um, variety of services, um, Trying to think of the, the best way to, to describe kind of the, the journey a little bit is, um, you know, kind of what the program itself. So right now, the program I'm working in is um, has a more of a representation of um, crimes fueled by substance use. Um, so in most cases, about two thirds of the participants in the program are charged with a property crime like residential burglary, um, vehicle prowl, things of that nature. There's a little bit of possession charges, a little bit of delivery or selling. Um, but during the process of participating in that program, which is a behavior modification program, uh, folks are connected to medication, um, everything from Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol. Um, we start off by you know, issuing folks Narcan, Naloxone. Um, we have a housing program attached to that where folks can get some rep-free housing for 12 months, recovery supportive. Um, Folks participate in intensive outpatient, outpatient services, mental health counseling, one-on-ones with counselors from both SUD or mental health. Um, Progressing through the program um, requires um, abstinence and can be supported by medication. But once folks complete the drug diversion court program, their felonies are dismissed um and so that's the experience i had with it was starting on the other side of the program got two of my felony charges dismissed and um back on the other side of that program now giving back to folks that i feel like i understand and i see a lot of people from the street to my community in there um day in and day out
0: that's cool i i think that really um you really have kind of like a leg up I I can't say I've ever heard of someone who went through drug court and then then ended up working for them so that's got to be like a major advantage um most most often you know I I'll, I'll be honest like I know other participants who have done it um I know the success rate is usually pretty low um at least here in Virginia I'm only going to talk about um You know what i know at least is that the success rate is pretty low and it's usually like counselors and and people who are maybe like social workers and people who might not understand the disease as much as someone who has it um and i'll be honest i've probably talked shit about it on, on this podcast at some point but that's because of you know my knowledge and research of it with virginia's um how much of an advantage is it having Uh, substance use disorder while helping people with a substance use disorder? I mean, I think all of us do that, but we don't always see it in like a drug court governmental
1: setting. (laughs) That's a great question. I think, you know, right now is, I mean, I, I mean, not to, you know, have it sound selfish, self-centered, but I feel like, you know, there's a level of effectiveness that there's a lot of folks supporting the drug court mission in the community that, Um, as well as in the court, you know, it's a multidisciplinary team. And I think it's one thing to, you know, seemingly have people constantly telling you how to recover, but when you have a peer, you know, somebody who's been through the process, um, peer counselors and recovery coaches, which we're starting to integrate more partnering with an outside agency that is actually, um, training, um, other alumni to be recovery coaches, you get somebody that can show them how and can definitely level the playing field. And so you know, one of the things we've identified is they should probably, new participants of the program should probably hear from me and other graduates before they hear from anybody else on the first morning. That's kind of how it's set up, is we want to show you the resources and the people that are here to support you before we introduce the obligations and those things. And um, fortunately, a lot of the team that are there are people that I felt supported by, Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't have the peer perspective when I was there, but I feel like it has definitely strengthened our program. And to be honest, we weren't really at the forefront of, um, introducing peers into the model, but we're definitely, we're getting up to speed real quick. And I think, I think we're seeing the benefits of that. And I think the folks in our program are as well.
0: No, that's really cool. I, I commend you for that. Um, T just, just out of curiosity, have you or Seth ever been to drug court?
2: Uh, not personally been um, to drug court. However, I did serve for a period of time in a family dependency court, which similar, it mirrors it, but it's not the same. It was a voluntary uh, family dependency court. Dependency court in which family members had their children removed from the home for substance use and/or neglect, and then you would have to go through DSS along with the same type of team that you discussed, Joe, in order to be reunified with your child. So it was a different concept. Uh, it was less punitive. It didn't involve uh, charges. However, no, it was it was definitely moving to see families uh collectively work together to be reunified with their children
0: absolutely yeah yeah for sure and and i was looking at at your resume a little bit and and you're definitely overqualified um to be on 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 here like uh, or i i don't know i just like was reading it and it seems that you really put a lot of work in in a, in a very diverse thing um you know different areas and stuff like that so Thirty years in in kind of like public service. Um, mm-hmm. What have you found in that thirty years is kind of the biggest thing that we as a public need as a service?
2: Well, first I'll say I, I don't believe that I'm overqualified. I think uh, <laughs> we all we all bring something to the table. You know, into um, the answer to your question would be I think we need more community education. You know, in reference to substance use, harm reduction, addiction and recovery, and I also believe that we need to bridge the gap between prevention and recovery. They are two different separate models and we don't bring them together. So if anything, I would say. Uh, community education is key, and definitely when you're working with family members, and to include faith-based, any community member that touches a human being uh, should be educated around substance use and the in rec- the process to recovery. That's beautiful,
0: and that actually leads to our friend Seth here, who has been helping educate the community about substance use disorder. Correct, my friend, with the, with this uh, recovery high school that that you're helping run. Uh, yeah,
3: I mean, I first just want to say, well, I I really loved what that is a great segue and I love what T just said about the integration of substance use disorder, um, you know, treatment and recovery and, and prevention, which is and the way the way she just said that just made so much sense. Um, and we have we have seen that, right? We, we're so I work at this recovery high school, and it's very small, right? It, but it and it is abstinence based, meaning that the abstinence is. is the goal Uh, but certainly we also see you know what what many of us in recovery have seen or experienced and that's and we see relapse surely um with with some of our students um but i think what's interesting about that point and that um sort of the middle ground is that we see we have students that are what most people would consider very progressed in the in the if they refer to the disease model or just, you know, in, in terms of what drugs they've done, even by the age of 15, right. Or, or, or younger. Um, and then we have students that uh, recently we've seen a, more of a um, influx of kids that are coming directly out of junior high school and either a, either a guardian or a mentor or a coach or something like that has said, this isn't really looking like, this kid might be the best fit for a, for a traditional comprehensive high school. And, and, they, and they have some reasons for that. And, and uh, so we've seen kids come and we're not necessarily, we've, we've changed, right? We've adapted to our model to be a little bit more all inclusive of like, hey, look, if you're, if you want to be committed to sobriety, we're not going to be judging you on how bad of a problem you did or didn't have. We're more interested in, in, in your participation in this community but we do need that buy-in no no matter if you think you have a substance use disorder or not what we are doing here is is um these students are staying sober largely on community which i think the mcshin foundation is all about you know so Mm -hmm. yeah i'd be happy to talk you know extensively about that but it's a i've never seen i haven't worked in treatment um for many years i've never seen young people get a hold of recovery in a very real and meaningful way. And, and not just with certainly we have a girl, we have a kid who's 17 years old, who's going to be celebrating three years of uninterrupted sobriety literally next week. Uh, but that's not even the norm. You know what I mean? Like the norm is that kids get several months and even, even in 90 days or six months, they really increase their um, functioning in society and really start becoming contribute, you know, contributors rather than not, uh, whatever whatever hardships they were experiencing before
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i I think it's a great idea Uh, i really commend you for it for sure um joe did did you and
1: seth know each other prior prior to now (laughs) yeah um actually seth was one of the first people i met um within my first 24 hours um after being released from jail part of my drug court track was um Kind of being separated from the community, because I had a very difficult time uh, stopping using, and so I did about 110 days in an in custody treatment program um, that was kind of like outpatient in a in custody facility. But um, the morning after, um, he was one of the first people I met in the local recovery community, and so um, definitely debt of gratitude to Seth for um, much of my recovery process over these years, and understanding the value of community. Um, somebody that stepped out on a limb to extend, you know, hope and fellowship to me when um, it, it was it was probably the first most difficult week of my life is figuring out how do I stay abstinent in the community and commit mm. to this process. And um, so, yeah, this has been a, a wonderful journey watching what the work he's doing and, um, you know, being able to, to call him a friend during this process as well.
0: Mm -hmm. that's that's super cool man i remember like when uh when i went to roanoke i went to that's where i'm from Roanoke, virginia i went back home at like day 15 or 20 or something like that and i was talking to a guy at this conference and and i was kind of like ashamed that i was like only 15 or 20 days clean and he told me he was like you got more courage than anyone else in this room right now and it was like this huge banquet or whatever so you know, that first 30 days is like super commendable to anyone going through that right now. And so um, a- anyone listening, just keep keep at it for sure. Um, I-, I think that's really, you know, heartwarming to hear, Joe. Um, so, T, you, you, you're in with the um, Maryland Recovery Advocacy, um, the organizer for Maryland Recovery Advocacy Project. What is um, Maryland kind of been working on right now or, or looking at right now? As like a top priority.
2: From a local level, it would be just kind of engaging and bridging a di- digital divide. From a statewide level, you know, and there's some huge advocacy efforts going on in reference to harm reduction, building uh, stakeholders, organizing our communities, talking to uh, local officials, and trying to really engage people and really meet them where they are. Uh, We have to be honest about what's happening in our communities and and engage our young people. So we're kind of building a recovery-ready community, if you're familiar with that. The same thing that uh, young people in recovery has its will and kind of moving around this will to effectively uh, engage and support the community. So we did a few listening sessions when COVID first hit. Uh, And Recovery Action Project is just like huge about working on real solutions, right? And not focusing on a problem, but really kind of just homing in on the solutions, right? And we can't do that without listening to our community members. So, and then engaging and creating a plan and then forwarding and implementing the plan and then reevaluating it. And I know that's a lot to say in a nutshell, but that's really what we have to do. So just really being busy about uh, what's happening Talking to our community members, engaging our young people, organizing our stakeholders, meeting our constituents, you know, talking about how we can support each other definitely during this pandemic, because it has just changed the whole focus of everything, how we engage and provide peer support, how we work with the individuals who need or are actively using drugs right now, um, those who are currently in recovery and we're trying to support them to remain in recovery. Um, and it, it's just been a challenge and I'm sure this is across the board for everyone here, but that's the benefit about being a part of the recovery action project because you can meet people, you can network, uh, you can learn from each other, right? And, and it's, co- it's a collective room of people coming together to support the recovery movement. So it's, it's been an amazing ride being a part of uh the recovery action project and i look forward to the upcoming year
0: yeah that's awesome and and so like seth and joe i can imagine as as t was talking kind of like acclimating to a more digital um you know recovery platform um has that been difficult at at the high school seth or are y'all kind of just like business as usual
3: Well, it's business as usual in terms of the kids teaching me more than I teach them. That is no change there, but that it was an adjustment, you know, and uh, I mean, I'm blessed. I feel really fortunate to be able to say, I mean, even just to be in recovery and and have a job, you know, that could go remote, remote, because that wasn't my experience up until, you know being in long-term recovery it was a long journey for me i didn't have a driver's license for the first six years i was sober so that was that gives you an idea you know just a little bit um but they've i mean i've been amazed at the kids how how well they've adjusted and i was really concerned you know um just because we've put all this i don't even know how many times they heard me personally say like you know, let's put the phone down and that's not really real connection and we're trying, you know, the opposite of addiction <laughs> is connection. We're trying to tap in and then you're like, so about that, you know, and um, that, that's kind of real, you know, they throw that back on me and stuff, you know, and um, I think probably one of the harder things is like um, you're trying to be respectful of um, young people and, and and give them autonomy and so we sort of have—you're not even really supposed to tell kids like to turn on their camera, really. Which I—I I probably violate that a little bit, you know, by just like really encouraging, you know, like it, it really makes a difference, right here, even even just us right here, right now. I feel <laughs> like no tea, right? And I clearly know Joe and Alex. I've watched you in a couple other podcasts, right? It's just it creates a different sense of community. But um, we've also gotten creative about. When when we could, when we've been able to create some um, social distancing types of activities and stuff like that in and around Seattle. And we've gotten a lot of support from, um, you know, first place I would mention is actually where Joe and I met, which is like, if you can see my shirt, but this is 23rd and Cherry Fellowship Hall, which if you ever go to a meeting in Seattle, that's where you want to go um they've like sponsored a lot of activities for our kids right this is one of the local recovery halls and uh predominantly serving the African American community in Seattle since since the early 80s um and then the one thing i did want to mention as well that it was recently erected uh and i know that the founders of the McShane you know John and Carol i believe uh, have been hugely involved in 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 the collegiate recovery communities and the recovery high schools throughout throughout the country, um, and so one of the things that supports recovery schools because it's one thing to provide a a school you know during the school day okay that's great we got you sober from nine a.m. to three p.m. Well, what about the other twelve hours that the kids mm-hmm. are up after you know they stay up pretty late they stay up quite late. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think, you know, think they I don't sleep I don't think they, I don't think exactly they sleep right. at all <laughs> right you know it's exactly. I-
2: Speaking of speaking of young people, uh, we actually did a panel yesterday, and we had the uh, our very first recovery high school in Frederick, Maryland, which is Phoenix uh, Recovery um, Academy, and with Sean Nicholson and, and some other great people doing some awesome work and really changing lives for young people. Uh, it. Really gave me the vision to want to bring a recovery high school uh, in Baltimore City and, and really drive to work and have real conversations with young people. I think that we we talk to kids and we don't listen to kids, you know, so I'm really looking forward to uh, bringing that to light. You know i'm sure that takes a lot of planning and i'm learning a lot from phoenix and they have been awesome i um, just supporting us you know first you just have to have a vision right but just walking into phoenix you felt you can i don't even know if it's such thing but you can feel recovery right it was clean it was safe uh, it was airy food being brought to the kids every day i mean it was it was one of the most amazing experiences to the point where I went back a second time. So I, I thank them for uh, allowing us to do that. And it's just a great movement that they're doing there in uh, Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: We, we definitely had, had Sean and, and I think a, a couple of the other people associated with it on. And I didn't understand until talking with them just how daunting of a task it is to get one of these up and running. I mean, the, the, bureaucracy and the red tape and the obstacles and, and just the sheer magnitude of it all is, is really, you know, I I was taken aback at it when we were talking to him, but it's like such a huge reward to have one. And I think having one in Baltimore would be awesome. And, um, I think that's a great idea in general. Um, so, um, just to switch gears a little bit, Joe, you mentioned that you were a veteran. Is that correct? Correct. Um, as a veteran, do you think that um, other veterans are like missing certain services, or uh, maybe um, at like a disadvantage if there's a certain, um, I don't know, any input there?
1: You know, I get speaking for locally. I feel like there's there's a wealth of energy and focus here in Seattle and King County. I mean, my my support as a veteran actually started behind bars um you know that was somebody who was discharged for my drug use and you know so i had pretty much given up on the idea that i was even eligible for anything and they came and found me you know king county correctional facility and i was actually surprised um there was a, a a very renewed push by um some local county council members and some people in our local behavioral health and recovery division at the county level that were like hey we're we're missing this population and you know how do we how do we identify where they are what are we like what are the questions we're asking that aren't letting us know where these where these vets are and so a lot of it had to do to you know had to do with discharges related to substance use which is something in my experience which felt like i didn't classify as a veteran and so i think at least in our community and our region here in washington around seattle It's been heavily focused on like asking those right questions, letting vets know that like maybe at the federal level, you're not, you can't, you're not getting certain supports, but here in Seattle and King County, like you are eligible for things, you know, and then it's other, it's other things that are breaking down on a larger scale that even with my discharge of other than honorable, I'm still eligible for behavioral health services at the VA here in the Beacon Hill section of Seattle, which, you know, to me, had that been available when I was in drug court, would it have changed, you know, my, my treatment and my outcome? I don't know, but having that option available to be in treatment and recovery um, or behavioral health settings with other veterans, maybe for that camaraderie, those other things, you know, that, that might've been just even more beneficial to me, but that's something that's progressed over the last few years. And so just kind of seeing that Again, I can only speak for here, but I feel like we're we're doing pretty well in the Seattle and King County area. I don't know, if, Seth, if you have any other thoughts on that as well. But
3: uh, yes, I am a I'm a sober veteran as well. I'm proud of that. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I I mean, definitely what Joe was just saying, you know. But I have to be really honest too. One of the things was that I, you know, my military career was also abruptly you know they they sort of like respectfully encouraged me to just go on out of the military you know like you're not you're not eligible for reenlistment. you know like I, my drinking had gotten pretty serious um but one of the things that i have to say is that i, I actually encountered like this was actually you know it was kind of dark I guess but what my cellmate one of my cellmates um, that led up to me getting sober behind duIs and stuff like that um, I swear I mean this guy was like uh, my counterpart he you know it seemed like he had almost had the exact same story as me we had the same rank we enlisted around the same time we both deployed all this stuff. And except there was one key difference and he was African-American and I was white. And I tell you what, the other difference was that he, I was getting an honorable discharge and he was not. And uh, yeah. that just came up for me right when Joe was talking like that. And I was just thinking about, and, and and he went on to, I'm pretty sure he went on to prison, you know, and, 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 our, and we had the same charges, right? And so just looking at my whole journey would have been completely different, you know, if I wasn't able to access those those VA benefits. I mean, that's something we could really look at, um, cl- more closely is that if, you know, veterans that are disproportionately affected by substance use, um, could be looked at as like, you could, look, if you, if you're willing to receive some help, you could hold on to your benefits. What, what greater thing could you provide to your, to people that have served your country, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't know that that's happening enough. I've certainly surely benefited from many, many of the VA benefits. So mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. The VA is definitely the best way that uh, veterans can get involved and, and get the services that they need. But I think often like, you know, veterans and black people are the disenfranchised that kind of get forgotten about a lot of times. Um, T, is that kind of the case? And in, 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 when you when we talk about Baltimore and I mean, that's kind of like one of those cities that pops in people's head about the disenfranchised and, and the forgotten. Can you maybe elaborate on, on kind of the same question, but from a different
2: angle? So, sure. So, um, uh you know, everyone's using the term BPOC, so yeah. Black Indigenous people of color are always. Uh, uh, it's always a, a issue with that around being supported in the proper way, right? Okay. Just okay. bottom line It's the easiest way I can say it is a huge amount of systemic racism. Um, you know, we, we're working with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and in trying to make sure people who need the supports get it. And I believe we need to raise our voices a lot higher. You know, uh, and bridge that gap and talking to people and, and support people that really need the services communities are hurting in Baltimore City uh, uh just some stats in 2019 we had 910 individuals just in Baltimore City alone uh, die from unintentional drug and alcohol related overdoses you know and this year just from I'm sorry January to September we had 2025 people who lost their lives. And and a lot of that, in a lot of the areas, Baltimore was the highest rating outside of, uh, I believe it was PG County, who had a high amount of uh, unfortunate related overdoses. So it's just been our thing to really try to work and try to bridge in those gaps for communities and uh, individuals of color, you know, uh, to support them in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. I think the solution to that is, you know, looking at it more so not from an abstinence base, but really addressing the harm, like reducing the harm. So we are a big harm reduction state. You know, at one time we was, you know, pushing everything, recovery, recovery, recovery. But, you know, for Baltimore City. Uh, I would say we have really have to look at it from a different, a different lens. And I think in, uh, approaching it in a space of reducing the harm first, and that's for even for young people, people of color, you know, our entire communities, uh, how we engage and navigate them to the road to a recovery, it will be key. You know, the end game is recovery, but we just have to look at it a little bit different, especially for uh, uh, black and indigenous and people of color. Okay. Good. That, that That's very I- I informative. And I think that's
0: very well said, um, you know, in, in short. Um, so I, I also kind of wanted to ask, um, I guess, like Seth and Joe, you know, being out in the West and, and you know, arguably one of the more liberal parts of the area, um, does that play a factor into kind of like the progression and the progressiveness? And um, I, I guess kind of like, how recovery is seen and, and per- perceived from like a stigma standpoint. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> um, Well, you know, and I want I mean, to go know- right above Oregon, who just passed one of the most lucrative laws in, in you know, the modern era.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we just, I just sat in on a, on a press conference today about a similar bill that Washington's trying to take a run at to similar to Oregon. And, you know, I mean, <sighs> Seattle itself, you know, I, I believe pioneered the, the lead program, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. It's something that came out, you know, out of here about 20, uh, 2013. And, you know, there was a big, there's been a big look at decriminalization, in the sense of what I see happening in the community. Like if you come around down by Superior Courthouse in the areas I was running around, um, I discussed in the book, it was like, you know, it's been hands off approach out there um which in some sense i feel like is you know um contrastingly uh, oppressive in the sense of trying to arrest your way out if you don't avail anything and um you know yeah like we get you know we get labeled as progressive in these things but if you've been paying attention to the news around this summer lead is changing its name here in this community because they don't want to be associated with seattle pd i mean Mm. (laughs) i won't get into the nuts and bolts of that but if you're paying close attention outside of mainstream media, you know, um, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to break ties with, with that, but it's, it's hard because that plays, they, that, that group plays a role in this, this idea of decriminalization, but I feel like it's already kind of been, it's been happening in an oppressive sense in the community. And and now it's trying to, I feel like, this is just kind of my personal take on it is, you know, trying to formalize it with a bill. And I feel like it's, you looked around in king county you got 12 13,000 people living out of doors and i can tell from my experience it's difficult not to use substances living out of doors at night for a variety of reasons i think many people know um but when we get to the point that we're realizing we can't throw blanket fixes at people we have gentrification we have massive racial disparities in the city of seattle in king county people are getting pushed out of the central area of the city yeah, that's where most of the resources are, is we're looking at layers and layers of things that need to be addressed for black, indigenous people of color for, you know, we're looking at classism, racism. Um, you know, it's it's difficult. There's a lot happening with it. And, um, you know, right now, as I feel like people are extremely susceptible just because it's COVID in a sense, I feel like has kind of been this this equalizer. You know, not not to, you know, it's not going over the 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 boundaries of race and class and that kind of thing, but it's got a lot of people jammed up for a variety of reasons, socioeconomically, you know, mental health issues, increased substance use, increased domestic violence, and have people needing to find more relief and with trying to find more relief when it ends up in substances, we need more treatment. You know, and so we talk about things like prevention, like T was talking about you know, what does that look like for a progressive place like Seattle with the rising cost of rent is displacing the people that represent Seattle, you know, is it's, what does prevention look like for that is addressing the root causes and conditions associated with people finding relief in substances. And so, I mean, we're in that decrim, the ballpark a little bit, I feel like, you know, there's, I think things have been labeled harm reduction in our community, but again, and that keeping people out of doors, is it really reducing harm, like exposing people to a continu- continued cycle of trauma because we're fighting over how to give people affordable housing or low income mm-hmm. housing? I mean, these are the things that we're up against. And you know, this city is changing. If you watch it, and I've only been here 12 years. And I mean, I can see that glaringly, you know, as a, as a cis hetero white man looking around being like, yeah, this ain't OK by, mm-hmm. by any means. There's a lot happening here. that kind of answers it there's there's a lot of layers to what's happening in seattle i feel like though for sure and anyway i can
0: imagine and y'all y'all are kind of like in the eye of it right now anything else to add there seth
3: um i mean i would i love what what t was talking about and what joe had mentioned i mean um when when t was speaking i was just thinking of, of the to me, what she was talking about is the necessity of being realistic about meeting people where they are and um, providing, you know, can't, I think, I think w- without losing, uh, you know, harm reduction efforts and whatever, and that can look a lot of different ways. It shouldn't be, you know, no one, um, you know, no one should have a monopoly on what the term harm reduction actually refers to because we are all working very much well on the reduction of harm. And in addition to that, uh, the person, one of the people who started our recovery high school, um, Jim Vollendroff, he frequently has been saying, you know, he just reminds us all so many times that abstinence-based recovery is also alive and well. And it's and it's it's succeeding at levels that we're not often able to, uh, support with empirical data because we're anonymous. You know, we have we, we operate in these different communities, and sometimes that works. That's very helpful in some ways, and, and not so helpful in other ways when you're talking about trying to really capture uh, how the efficacy of how well something is working. And no one's ever come to me and asked me. You know, I'm not a part <laughs> of any surveys, right? And and I don't know what the thousand people that I know aren't either, right? So I think that we could do a little better in, in terms of figuring out, hearing from our community leaders, you know, what is that? Is this working? Is this, is it not? What are you seeing? Um, because we, and that's the thing that I would say about the decriminalization. Like I wasn't even offered the the option to do drug court. I don't know if that was because I was drinking my myself was drinking or what the, what the deal was, or maybe because I felt I didn't, I mean I had a felony charge don't so I don't know what happened there. It wasn't an option for me. Um, but I think that just looking at um, what are what are some other options that we can realistically offer? Like right now, um, for instance, we look—you know—absence-based recovery school. If initially what we had, and this—and many, I'm on, I'm on the board of uh, recovery schools, the national board. So if you're looking for the association of recovery schools, that's a great resource, right? And a lot of my mentors are on this board, right? And. And a lot of these schools started out as like requirements of 30 days sober. You got to have that. You got to, you know, clean pee tests and all this stuff. And then you start realizing, you start unpacking some of that. And you're like, well, that's real easy to accomplish if you just came out of a six or 12 month treatment center that was private pay. And guess who's going to that? Right? It's it's, it's not it's not uh, the BIPOC populations that T was talking. About, you know, so that's that when you really unpack that, you start realizing that's a racist policy. So we had to change that entire policy um, and, and we're still not even close to being there to do, to doing enough. Um, but we are starting to provide thing. We, we just started, Seattle's just began its first alternative peer group, which that's another thing that, that is supports many of the longstanding recovery schools throughout the country. And that's, that is the piece. It's essentially, um, it's like the McShin foundation. It's this peer, it's a peer led um boys and girls club essentially for kids in recovery so what, what are they going to do with those other however many you know until midnight once they get out of school at three where they're going to do a bunch of activities they're going to do um you know music sports certain meetings but we have we have surpassed the place where accepting that I've, I've hugely benefited from the 12 step community. That is not necessarily enough for teenagers. Like, okay. One more meeting. You know what I mean? Like that, you know, that can be, especially when you come to, online, yeah. you know, you're like tap into another, really, that's what you're coming with. You know, they're like, come on now, you know, so their attention span is not really, that's not too realistic. So we got to get more creative and innovative. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I was, I was just about to say that more, more creative. I mean, I, I have the fortune of like doing the group schedule here for the groups that we do from like 8.30 to 5. And even, you know, I could try to put in as many groups as possible, but I've had to put in stuff like, you know, let as simple as let's go on a walk. I, I know y'all are sitting in a room all day and listening to kind of like the same stuff. Let's do yoga. Like, I, like I'll have them do if they want to. Um, you know, a Zoom yoga instructor, like two Fridays out of the month. And you'd be surprised how many... Dudes are actually like, okay, I can get into this sort of thing just because it's a little different. We're, we're, we're in a situation where we're, we're becoming a little more open minded, which, which I think is um, awesome. So, T, um, Kelly actually had a really good question. She asked, how does harm reduction programs such as needle exchange help lead to recovery?
2: Oh, so if we are actually in the process right now for advocacy for uh, OPS sites in Baltimore City. So if we were to, and I'm going to claim it, that we would be successful in gaining a OPS site. So we are able to do that if we had harm reduction sites for needle exchange programs to lead to recovery. The, the key of it is, who's in the site, right? So we have individuals who have lived experience of substance use and recovery, able to engage individuals who are actively using drugs, you know, we can reduce the harm and support them and lead them in the process to recovery. I think it's the multiple pathways and how we approach the recovery process. I think having peers everywhere, and I always said that, you know, to include the future OPS sites, it's gonna be a key in reducing harm, saving lives, and navigating people to recovery. Cool. Yeah, what a, what a concise answer, very clear.
0: Um. And, and that also brings up like, we talk about multiple pathways often, and and a lot of people might not understand what that means, but like drug court is a pathway to recovery. You know, these these OPS harm reduction sites are, are pathways. Uh, high school is, is a pathway to recovery. I mean, all this stuff, are just different ways to do it. Uh, I feel like um, we can kind of jam NA or AA, 12 step programs in general, down people's throats. And that makes them averse to it. A lot of times Um, I think Seth also brought up a a good point on the data. I'm very like evidence-driven, you know, I, um, am a numbers guy. And that is what I think is a, is a major problem with anonymity. You know, it's, it's great for personal recovery, but. It doesn't always it doesn't exactly prove that this stuff works because we can't get any data on it. Um, I'm happy to be a part of a foundation that takes data seriously and says you can we can take the recidivism rate and lower it if they come here. Like, it, And that's what the evidence shows. Um, Joe, is there any sort of like maybe data from from how drug courts work that that can, um, you know, also say s- positive things like that? Cause I know drug courts do do a lot of data as well. I'm pretty sure.
1: Um, let me, ask, are you specifically asking about like drug courts interacting with the 12 step community and, and success on, on that engagement or, or just as, as a big picture in general,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, once, once T was mentioned in some numbers, that stuff that I, it kind of, you know, actually gives it like a concrete perspective to me sometimes where it's like, wow, that's, too many people to die in the last year or, or something like that. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, statistically, how, how like successful is it?
1: A hey, drug court? How successful yes. is it? So I think, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, what's happening in the drug court, you know, it's for, for one, like for the one that I work in, I believe we have a right now between a 65 and 67% success rate. I don't like the word success with it because That's you can amazing. You can complete, you, you can actually not complete drug court, but still be exposed to tools and resources, recovery, community, yes. RCOs. And I've seen it with people that went through the program that I was out in the streets with, people that graduated and still knew, hey, I know where to go for those things. Um, again, one of the things that, you know, we're looking at, you know, the historical component of the war on drugs. Why are people not engaging with treatment? What does it mean to be black and indigenous and a person, excuse me, indigenous and a person of color and be brought into drug court and be like, why, you know, and I can't speak for any person of color, but you know, why would I commit to this process? This system is continuously harming. me. And so we're looking at how do we unpack that? How do we break down those barriers? I mean, and it's things like there are narratives inside of the community, whether it's outside of the jails or inside of the jail saying, this is a setup. This is what's going to happen there. This is what's expected. I mean, we're looking at, the 12 step community knows that the criminal legal system pawns people off on it. So what is the program I do, you know, that I work with, what are we trying to do is say, you don't have to do 12 step. You can get credit for healthy social activities. I'm heavily focused on Buddhist and mindfulness based recovery. I'll lead a mindfulness group on Mondays. We do a recovery topic Tuesday and Friday. We have a grief and loss group. We're realizing like we have to get outside the framework of what, is represented as the harmful arm of the criminal legal system and be looking at how are we reducing harm you know and um you know we're primarily working with folks that are having impacts on other people in the community yes we still have possession yes we still have um, delivery charges but we're really looking at folks where the substance use has progressed so far to the point that there needs to be a more robust type of support and that's great with twelve step. It's great with these other, you know, modalities. But um, sometimes that re- that relationship, that interaction with the judge, um, you know, that's when we talk about success rates in the court. We're talking about working with that population, high risk, high needs of reoffense, reincarceration, you know, things like that. And so, um, you know, getting back to the just the basic of your question, is it ideal for somebody who's getting? gets pulled over and gets you know picked up with an empty baggie. Maybe not, probably not. you know somebody that really needs that you know that robust community support and a relationship with the judge where they're actually making con- eye contact and the prosecutor isn't looking to nail them every time they walk into the courtroom and they feel supported and there's contingency management and people being rewarded for showing up and those kind of things. that's the kind of court I work in. That's the kind of courts I would like to see more around the community. And I think with more of that, we change the nature of people's experience with this system, maybe the, you know, the outcomes would be higher, you know, the, the successful outcomes. But again, it's just not measured by completion of the program. People get exposed to so many different pathways and supports along the way.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and and and, you know also being a being a person that loves stats i know numbers can kind of be twisted and and, and manipulated sometimes so like i I think that's a very good point that you bring up is exposure to outward like resources and and you know recovery outcomes is kind of language that i've heard in in the last few months of what that is what are recovery outcomes kind of like all these different factors that play into what recovery looks like um seth and in, in, in this high school, do you do you have like? Well, f- first off, how long has the high school been operational?
3: Uh, we're going on about five and a half years.
0: That's awesome. So, have y'all been collecting yeah. data a- along this time to kind of show people that this is a viable option instead of just kind of like, you know, it's it's clearly kind of past the the pilot program stage. It's th- I feel like now um, y'all probably have some some data that you can show to parents and show to kids and show um, you know different courts and governments that this is uh, another viable option instead of say you know juvenile corrections or something like that
3: yeah we do have um i mean the first thing i want to make sure to mention is that um for anybody that is looking for much more longitudinal you know comprehensive data on recovery high schools you want to look at the association of recovery schools and particularly Look for a name. Uh, Andy Finch. Andrew Finch is um, probably the leading most um, statistician and author regarding all things recovery schools. He's on the board as well. And uh, so he, he really has compiled a lot um, around the efficacy of recovery high schools. Uh, what we have found in a smaller collection, right, because even these schools, they're, they're quite small, right? At least, I mean, our school even right now is about 30 students total. Right, right now, and, and and there's the hope, of course, is that, to grow way beyond that, and and before I even forget, but what we are also seeing is that in, in the same frame of what T was talking about, it's not realistic for every for a lot for a lot. Not every teenager's dream is to be totally abstinent for their high school career. You know, like okay. whether that or not. You know, that's just not what they're not. Quite there yet. And some of them may not even need to get there, right? And so we're trying to build up other, you know, other alternative school options and other programs, such as the alternative peer group or, or whatnot, that can be a middle ground a little bit, you know, that they don't have to be this full. It's either you're all the way in or you're out, you know, because mm-hmm. a recovery high school versus a, a traditional high school is a very stark contrast, right? But what we have found in a study that we did, um, around about 50 students is that, and this is, this is rough data, so you're not going to find this abstract and all that's yet to be produced. But um, we did, we recently have done a, a couple studies and, and what we, what we found is that students that were, that participated in our program for, you know, beyond a, a full, full school year, year. So beyond nine months, essentially, um, were able to, The first thing they did was they increased their attendance from um about one to one day a week to to close to four days a week so it's not five but you know it's a huge increase right double or triple their attendance um we we noticed that students that had um they were able to increase their their grades got significantly better but what they did with their credits was they were able to in, in in the span of a year they were able to double their total amount of high school credits that they had and and clearly to be completely transparent we had some students coming in with two credits as a junior you know three and five credit right but we have it, the infrastructure is such that we're supported by this um interagency is the high school infrastructure in seattle that supports like 10 different alternative school campuses for kids that are um quite, quite far behind on credits Uh, and they offer smaller class sizes and and, uh, more culturally competent education, I will say that, right? Um, And we saw a cumulative grade point averages rise between four and five points on average. So pretty, no, no real shocker that once, once a kid comes in, gets sober. Eliminates drugs from their life and maintains it. And so they have maybe get through a period of post acute withdrawal. where They might see little spikes, you know, certainly in behaviors and um, what and mental health, right? That's certainly a big, our population's majority co occurring, surely. Um, their lives get significantly better. And all of a sudden, school becomes, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, if you're, a, if you're a high schooler that's sober, to, why wouldn't I be going to school, especially if I'm going to be going to school with other sober kids? You know, it's just like it, it clicks. So we've seen, I, I've seen some very significant, I've never, never, in the entire rest of my career, I've never seen this level of productivity from the youth population in terms of sobriety and, and what it yields in their daily functioning.
0: Sure. That's really cool. That's that's impactful stuff. Um, T. Before we wrap up, I, I did want to ask you. Um, I, I did see that like education uh, has been a major part of kind of like your journey. Has that played a factor into your recovery journey? Has your recovery played a factor into your like e- educational history?
2: Uh, I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, And it's two different levels for me for education. I think this book education and then community recovery education, right? And what I have learned from just being a family member of someone that's impacted by substance use and addiction and recovery, right? So for me, I think it's just about Learning as much as possible. And that's ever changing about the disease of addiction and the navigation to recovery. And then trying to educate others about the fact that recovery is possible, you know, and I think that's what that's my biggest kick right now. It's funny that we are uh, sticking on and talking about young people, but I also want to include faith based organizations, uh, neighborhood associations, uh, you know, building a community-based level around education about addiction, about even substances. Right? We all believe that because we are working in the realm of recovery, that everybody understands different substances, they understand addiction, and they understand the net, the pathway to recovery. But that's not true. Even down to our local legislators, like you, really are in a in a teaching mode every time you enter a room. Right? Your your mindset as a, a peer recovery specialist is. To to go in and give them something before you walk away, and it's our hope through the Maryland Peer Advisory Council, through Impact, and through this Advocacy and Leadership Program that we're able to educate as many people as possible. I would also love to introduce some peer recovery trainings to some the younger population, uh, and and to know that they can go back into their communities, actually in their high schools. You know, if if when the future. Um, lotus preparatory school comes together that they're able to work and be in a place where they can support individuals in recovery and whatever that looks like for them right not to mm-hmm. us you know because reduced recovery may look like a large lens for them something they can never and i'm talking about young people that they may feel like they can never achieve but if you making small steps uh is the key and then wrapping education around that for young people and others who are seeking recovery, is going to be the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and uh, you know,
0: one can actually like argue that you know there there could be an advantage to being young. Our, our brains are still plastic. I feel like um, you know we have a certain age range of of you know a median of maybe about like thirty to thirty five maybe here at McShin and I feel like um you know at a certain age people are set in their ways it's a lot I think harder to unchange things in, in general um that's not like to disparage or be ageist or anything like that um that's just from from what I found with communicating with people I and that's not also to say that I had a you know 68 year old friend of mine that just recently got his first year clean so it was like beautiful to see and he was like yeah even he was like even us old farts can recover and i was like i love you man like it's just so beautiful to see like a a a, this disease doesn't care about your age race creed uh tax bracket or whatever so recovery shouldn't either um it's kind of how i see it i I think it's really cool uh before we wrap up i just kind of wanted to throw out like kind of this question that uh, Debbie Rosenbaum had, Um, how blessed we are today to have so many pathways for recovery for students and people who are seeking recovery. Um, Y'all have any advice on what can we do to
2: keep this hopeful momentum going? Never stop talking. Never stop advocating about recovery we have to keep recovery in the forefront you know we have to continue to be a voice for the voiceless we have to continue to try to educate and build relationships with individuals who don't understand the disease of recovery to include family members which we didn't really discuss heavily on this call tonight but we really have to continue the message that recovery is truly possible
3: yeah i love it i, I would say um I would say is like doing, it's like, it's like the critical thinking and listening piece. Like if you, like when I was talking about recovery schools, T immediately jumped in. It was like, we need to get one of those here. Right. And that, that would be my message about for young people. It's not like, it's not just like this novelty idea of like a recovery high school. Well, we should, you know, that'd be great. It is an injustice to children to not have one in every single district. How would that be? Right. What are kids will to do after they come? At, you know, residential treatment gets a bad rap. And it's not even about that. It's a, I mean, it's what T said. It, it probably depends on who's running it, right? But there's great mm-hmm. programs. The problem is who's coming back? What are they coming back to? What's the, continu- what's the continuum of care? What's the coordination of care after they come back? Are they going back to the same school that they left from? Because that's about the worst possible thing you can do. Uh, if you go right back to the same exact environment, um, I think finding back to back to her point that was mentioned earlier tonight and it was reiterated that piece of where is the where's the merger between treatment and prevention? Where of this of a similar thread? Where's the merger between the ability to embrace um, harm reduction with abstinence based recovery? You know, can we not yeah. do, do these? need to live in these separate worlds but can we can we talk about it in a realistic way without losing the fact that of course what he also said was that what's the the main goal eventually we want to not be doing drugs right of course we want that to be the case it's just that that path and that journey can look different um and i think that and and always my i think being a being a abstinence advocate ha- having seen people do it I've, I've watched these young people literally put recovery on the map for teenagers in seattle because now you see them in meetings and you see them in the community it's not weird to see a teenager You're, you don't people don't wonder anymore oh where's that kid's parent they're there by themselves they came by themselves and they came in a herd and that's the thing that keeps them safe you know so i i think going at looking at it from that lens of how do how can we come together um because i just never want people to be sold short on what is possible you know if i had if i had got a different message i might not be sober you know i might not have thought it was realistic that i would be really all the way sober i know my family didn't think that was a realistic goal they thought i needed to drop not drive and that would solve you know what it means i came out of trouble right but so anyways i think just
2: collaborating more uh together you know reducing that stigma and harm for sure absolutely
1: yeah i think the thing that stands out for me is just based on some experiences I've had is, um, you know, really emphasizing, you know, I've had, had so many people over the years tell me things like, um, oh, I'm glad you could help yourself, you know, and th- that you were able to, you know, to get yourself out of that pit and really um, letting folks know that it's a, it's a community effort. Like it's not an individual show, it's a community effort. And um, the last part about that is that, like T said too, you have people that don't understand substance use, or they don't understand recovery. And there's people that it's difficult to have those conversations with. And we hear about tolerance and compassion for people who use drugs, but it's also tolerance and compassion and patience and kindness for those folks that don't understand this side of it. And we still need their support. We still need them to Support legislation and bills change and things like that, and that's I think that's some of the hardest work I've experienced. Is how do you yeah. how you engage those folks and bring them to the table and with the patience and the wherewithal to either change their mind. If we can't do that, just present the facts, you know. And and it's that's just the basis of it. Is this is a community effort. We need the community behind this, and you know, as it's specific to each locale, each region.
2: Yeah, we're definitely at a place where we have to change. In order to save lives, we have to change policy for Maryland. And I'm just speaking, um, and I'm sure that's probably the same across the country, but that is the only way getting those people, getting those people who really have a desire uh, for change at the table. And that's how we save lives is when we implement and we advocate to change different policies. Mm-hmm. yeah that's what
0: we, we've said on here is that, i mean it absolutely it starts local a lot of times more more often yes. than not for sure um any other final remarks t
2: no, I wanna thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to come on and speak about recovery. I'm always excited uh, to do that. I'm excited and it's refreshing to hear about young people. Love to have that dialogue and conversation because it's too many times that young people are just cut out of the conversation in reference to recovery. So that definitely was uh, was a, was a um, gave me a little heart sign to bring that in for tonight. Uh, great voices and I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Any, any, any closing remarks,
2: Seth?
3: Um, oh, I'm so glad that, j- j- you know, um, to be on here. I've, I read about T's accomplishments and there's plenty, right. And, and I've known Joe since he got sober and he's, he's been on the fast track, um, for quite some time. Um, hit, oh, I did want to just show he won't do it probably, but this is his book right here. Causes and Conditions. condition. He's too humble. <laughs> he's too humble.
0: Um,
3: <laughs> and, uh, so anyways, but I would just reiterate, I was just so glad what he just said about um, community. I just don't, I do not think that you can possibly put enough emphasis on like when from, in my experience between treatment and between his recovery high school, collegiate recovery communities, everything yes. that I read about that McShin is doing, uh, the foundation is all peer to peer. These, I'm seeing you know, case study after case study of a kid coming in. First thing that happens, they got to see somebody that if recovery is cool, boom, it's on the map for them. Without that, you're not, you may forget about it. You're coming with that corny square nonsense. Nope. You're not miss me with all that's what they say. And if, as soon as they can come in, find some sober friends, they can find a mentor. And before you know it, they are mentoring others. And all of a sudden it, you know that uh they've internalized this you know as part of as part of their identity and that and then it becomes their 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 primary social group so i just can't imagine that we do have plenty of kids with the 12-step groups but i will i will surely tell you that in my from objectively what i'm saying is that it is 90 percent about community 90 at mm-hmm. least you know just amazing and that's certainly been my experience as well so the last thing i would say is if we can get um more equitable access to treatment. That's that's the missing link. There's a small win. And this is not just with young people, right? There's this window of opportunity. I have I have a kid this week and a young adult last week where somebody is willing to go to treatment. But if they if there's barriers in the way, by Valentine's Day they're not going. That window closes that's That's, and I thought that anything that we can do if we really want to look at decriminalizing Mm -hmm. um and change in legislation that that has to be that is the diversion dr- directly into treatment if they want it right I'm not saying that's for everybody right but that just needs to, the, the barriers to be eliminated i think we're gonna i think we will double our success rate you know and, and then like you said alex we gotta capture it we gotta figure out how to capture uh, the success that's actually taking place
2: mm-hmm.
0: absolutely um uh, any other closing thoughts there uh joe
1: I don't think I have anything. Just a really a pleasure to be here. T, thank you for for everything you said tonight. Really grateful to be in this space with you, Seth, my brother. Thank you for your support along this journey. I, You know, you've contributed so much to it. And just want to thank Alex and Todd for, you know, making this happen for us tonight to share with uh, some other folks in the larger recovery community, which is highly virtual right now. So I uh, hope some folks got to join in. Appreciate y'all.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, you know, kind of as Seth said, so I hope these three wonderful people made recovery look cool. Um, I, I think for me, they definitely did. Absolutely. Make me very proud and happy to be in recovery. Um, I, I thank you all very much for coming on. It's very informative, very educational, very vital. Um, the, the work you all do is really just amazing. Um, T, Joe, Seth, I, I really appreciate it. Um, big shout out to our producer, Todd, and all those listening and watching. Um, if you need help, reach out. Uh, this has been Get In The Herd, After Hours. Peace out,
4: y'all. Uh, my name is Shannon Lance. I'm currently here in recovery at McShin Foundation. Uh, I got out of jail on January 10th, 2021. And while I was incarcerated there, uh, my mother passed away to, due to COVID complications on December 14th. Uh, it, was a, it was a really challenging event in my life. Uh, while I was incarcerated there, I, I watched the recovery videos and the podcast on the tablets there, uh, you know, that was made by the Nick Shen Foundation. Getting to her podcast is, really made me feel like I was a part of something on the outside because, you know, there's people that are commenting and just seeing you know, people that I was incarcerated with uh, on the videos and just thinking, man, you know, that's that's going to be me, you know, before too long. And, you know, I'm going to be sitting there in them rooms and, you know, be able to be a part of the podcast and get in the H.E.R.D. series. And, you know, now I'm a part of the H.E.R.D. here at McShannan. It's, it's an amazing feeling and it's it's nice having a, a fulfilled sense of hope in my life currently. And uh, just to live one day at a time and just to have... Positive feelings in my life and good relationships with you know my family and friends is uh, is an amazing event.